It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi there, I'm Chris Dashie. I'm Mike White. And this is Father Malone. And we are the hosts of Dreams for Sale, a once a month look at the only reboot of Twilight Zone that matters, though they would convince you otherwise, and somehow the newest reboot has a second season. Uh, sometimes I wonder, but I guess people are chomping at the bit for more uh, heavy-handed political allegories. We're talking about Twilight Zone 1985, and we are on the 20th episode of the show, looking at a profile in silver... And Button, Button. So Profile in Silver is directed by John Hancock, written by written by J. Neil Shulman. It stars Lane Smith and Andrew Robinson. Barbara Baxley is in there as well. And Lane Smith plays Dr. Joseph Fitzgerald, a time traveler who goes back in time to prevent the Kennedy assassin. Maybe not prevent it? He is observing it, and then he decides to prevent it because he is a descendant of JFK. It is a good episode. A good segment. And Andrew Robinson's amazing. What else is new? Andrew Robinson's always amazing, right? Hell yes, he is. And he's fantastic in this. And I love Lane Smith. I uh, always enjoy when he shows up in things. And I think that we should have had more Lane Smith while he was around. Well, I certainly can't argue with that. I think uh, Lane Smith, as you said, is a fantastic actor. He always elevates everything he's in. Andrew Robinson, son of Edward G. Robinson, should be pointed out, um, has always been interesting in everything he's done in his career i think the the his main claim to fame other than the hellraiser uh first film was uh playing the scorpio killer in uh the the original dirty harry film but here he is doing an amazingly good impression of uh john fitzgerald kennedy um and uh, I, uh, having said that, uh, as much as I really enjoy the performers and a lot, and enjoy a lot of what was going on in the episode, I got some problems. He's the son of Edward G. Robinson. I'd never heard that before. Yeah, absolutely. All right, I need to see proof. Where's the birth certificate? I will dig that up and send it to you via time travel. <laughs> well, he was born in Kenya, so. Mm, that's what I thought. Yeah. Yeah, it's not. He's not even American. A not American playing the president. Stop virtue signaling. Fi- <laughs> virtue signaling. Stop virtue signaling, gentlemen. <laughs> um, can we discuss? 
can we discuss doing the JFK thing? Because I dare I say there have been n- more, no more presidents profiled in film than JFK. And it's a varying range of quality when it comes to the we choose to go to the moon. Like everybody has their own thing. And Andrew Robinson evokes JFK, but he doesn't do the over the top thing that so many actors fall. It's a trap so many actors fall into. <laughs> yeah, at no point does he say, um, uh... Yeah, like Mayor Joe Quimby, which is like the one that I think of when I think of imitations of JFK that are just over the top. Obviously, it's satirical, but... Yeah, the, the, the Boston Brahmin accent, which is very specific and is only now remembered by the Kennedy family, is uh, 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 very distinctive, let's say. And here, I think, not only is uh, Andrew Robinson doing it and getting away with it, I think uh, Lane Smith is also doing it and getting away with it. Um, I think in the case of Andrew Robinson, it makes sense because that's the way that JFK actually spoke. Uh, as far as Lane Smith, 200 years in the future, probably not going to retain that particular accent. There are descendants of JFK this day. If you listen to them, they don't talk that way. Been in Boston or at Harvard for, I don't know, how many years it took him to oh, kind of get ingrained? Two years. All right. Yeah. No, okay. Okay. Since you brought that up, let's get into that. Okay. We've got a time travel story. Always interested in time travel. Always fascinating as a subject. We have a a group from the future who are sending people back through time to actually document the historical moments in uh, not only American but world history. And the way they do that here is to send somebody back to become a Harvard professor in the 1960s who will somehow rub up against the subject that he's there for. So he's effectively affecting... All of the lives of everyone he's come in contact with. That sounds like a good idea for the timeline, doesn't it, everyone? Andy has a coin from a year that doesn't even happen yet. What a great idea. Yeah, it's a little, it's a pre, it's pretty, it's pretty out there. Let's call him out on it, and then him just kind of shrug and go, ah, you don't really pay too much attention to that particular rule, do you? No, it's okay. I'm sure it won't pay off later in this episode. You pretty much got him on the nose. <laughs> you got him on the nose. I mean, oh, man, it's real bad. Like, there's a listen. There's a lot that I like in this episode. Um, I think it's an interesting concept to have a time traveler come back and be so overwhelmed by the moment in time that they're supposed to be observing that they affect a change in it, and then have to deal with the consequences of that. It's just so insane to me. Where you know, like at this point in history. So we're talking 2020 here. You know, a surgeon is not allowed to perform surgery on somebody that they know and or love. But we're going to take a descendant of somebody of history and send them back. And we're going to send them back way before the event that we're hoping that they're going to document. We're going to have them wait it out for a few years and hopefully not affect the timeline too much before they get to it. That's... That, to me, is the main problem of the episode. Uh, I've got a couple of quibbles near the end uh, when they try and resolve everything. Because everything sort of after the opening salvo and before 
the uh, attempt to resolve that situation is really solid, uh, particularly any of the interactions between Lane Smith and Andrew Robinson. Those are really good and feel really uh, interesting. I agree. And I like the guy that plays the uh, main Secret Service guy as well. As do I, and I wish I knew his name right now. Can somebody provide that name? Uh, I remember him talking about Macho Grande in the airplane movies. <laughs> right. <laughs> over Macho Grande? No, I'll never get over Macho Grande. <laughs> I believe his name is Luis Giambalvo. He's good. He's real good. Unsung character actor right there. Mm-hmm. I think what's most surprising to me about this segment is the fact that it tells a really compelling story and it has a twist and it does it all in like 27 minutes, mm-hmm. which is so, dare I say, I don't know. At this point, it feels a little uh, like we need to stop and take a moment and think about that because there haven't been a lot of these longer episodes that have done that. A lot of these longer segments really overstay their welcome. That's true. And it doesn't feel uh, like it's long enough that we needed more. Like it kind of gets to the point and then gets back out. Whereas some of the episodes that run this long were always left wanting. And why wasn't this even longer or why wasn't it shorter? I think this is the appropriate length of the episode. I just think there are moments that are so dumb within the episode, which they take pains to address that like it ends up collapsing on its own weight i don't know like the idea that a time traveler has a coin from the future and then is sort of haphazardly flipping it in his hand at the at the worst moment he could possibly have that coin out and then allows another person to get hold of it is so stupid like there are so many ways they could have contrived for that secret service agent to get his hands on that coin and, like, they gave us the most obvious and rote one. Yeah. I mean, I thought for sure when I was re-watching it, because I remembered the coin and all this, and, like, that that was what gave him away. I was like, okay, well, obviously, after he prevents the assassination, they're going to think that he's a bad guy and, or, you know, in on the plot, and they will search him, and that's when they'll find the coin, and that's when the jig is up. But no, that's not it at all. No, it's way stupider than that. That moment would have made total sense, where they just made him empty his pockets, they've taken all of his possessions because they're uh, 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 wondering about the guy, and they're like, everything checks out, but what is this? What's this coin? Yeah, and since you, you know, as the Secret Service actually works for the Treasury Department, I was expecting him to be like, we don't mint coins of, you know, sitting presidents, you know, how this is next year, how can this be? And I was almost expecting, and we'll be talking about Richard Matheson in uh, a few minutes here, but I was almost expecting a somewhere in time kind of thing where as soon as he sees the coin, then the whole, you know, like he gets transported or something, but what you going to do? You're going to yeah, have the main character go back in time to become JFK in a twist that almost makes no sense? Oh, oh, no, 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 it makes no sense. Yeah, like, oh, we're, uh, we've got a few more things to do now that I've sent my, uh, my ancestor back to the future uh, to take my place. I now need to go back to, I guess, 
World War II to get on that PT boat? Like, what? Yeah, it's not really well explained as to how he... I don't know. It's it's just... I, I kind of just give it a little bit of a pass. Maybe I shouldn't. But everything up until the end twist is so good that I kind of just don't care about how they kind of get to the conclusion. It's almost like how Barbara Baxley's character is saying a phrase in Chinese. And it's just like, like yeah, right? Yeah, like, whatever. Like Chen Lao Cha Pong Yo. Yeah. Yeah, like, okay, sure. <laughs> whatever. Like, uh, and her husband happened to be Chinese, I guess. Like, uh, okay, like, uh, maybe not. Maybe he just said Chinese proverbs because, like, I don't. And there's so much, there's so much good here. And then there are these kind of weird, like, just little idiosyncrasies that they kind of threw in. And I'm just like, okay, fine. Like, I'm not going to. In a worse episode, they may have stuck out more. Uh huh. But in this yeah. episode, it's I kind of just overlook it. Can we talk for a moment about the fact that there was a novel recently written by Mr. Stephen King called 112263 about effectively this exact same thing, where we have a time traveler from the future who goes back to Dallas around the same time and has decided that he's going to effect a change and uh, not have Kennedy assassinated. And the result is effectively the same, where the world tears itself apart afterwards because he's done that. And the result is also the same, and that the ending is awful. <laughs> well, it is a Stephen King book. Well, there you go. He he does not know how to end a book. No, he doesn't. I uh, ever I haven't read that one yet, or watched the TV show, or whatever they turned it into. Hulu limited series. It was pretty good. the 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 series The series is pretty good. the The book itself, which is one of uh, his like nearly it length novels, um, uh, it's yeah, a it's, it's a tome. Not, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a slog. At the same time, it's kind of fun because you know you're dealing with a guy who is talking about the time period he kind of grew up in, so you're getting a little bit of flavor uh, as far as that goes, but. Either way, dealing with the Stephen King book or dealing with this particular episode, in order to buy into everything that's going to occur, you have to accept that Lee Harvey Oswald is a Acted alone. Yes. I was thinking the same thing. I was like, well, he pointed out the guy in the book depository, but what about that guy in the grassy knoll? And what about that guy yeah. with the umbrella over there? Exactly. Where's the guy with the umbrella? Where's the other guy on the other side of the triangle where they triangulated his death? Um, look, man, uh, I'm all for revisiting this particular chapter in American history. Uh, I think it is uh, a wound that has never quite healed. But at the same time, if you look at any of the facts, even in a cursory way, you know that Lee Harvey Oswald was a fucking patsy and that there were other shooters involved. So, yeah, feel free all you want to point out that there's a guy in the book depository with a rifle, but that ain't the guy who's going to shoot the president anyway. So what are we dealing with here? I'm right there with you. I'm, I, am a, I am not a believer of the narrative. And look, conspiracy theories, say what you will about them, but the JFK one is like one of the more mainstream, if not the mainstream of mainstream conspiracy theories. There's a reason they're talking about his assassination in Twilight Zone. It's not an accident. 
is it a conspiracy at this point? I mean, have well, we all, as as a society, not accepted the fact that the fucking U.S. government like knocked this guy off? I think the only I person mean, who accepted it is uh, uh, the Harding Commission, the Warren Commission. Excuse me. The Warren, the Warren Commission. But like, I mean, if you just watch the Zapruder film and watch the guy slump forward and then get shot in the front of the head and get slapped back, you know that there wasn't a guy who was just shooting him from behind. There's a, there's clearly somebody else involved. Mike White, are you a conspiracy theory person when it comes to JFK? Oh, 100%. Okay, cool. You just hadn't said anything, so I didn't know. He's going to be oh, like, I no, believe I- the Warren Commission. <laughs> oh, God. No, no, I was the one who was pointing out the guy behind the grassy knoll. Because, yeah, I was as I was watching it, I was like, okay, yeah, you took care of the one guy, but what about the others? What about the cigarette-smoking man in the gutter? Let's not kid ourselves. <laughs> well, well the, he's the one who did it, obviously. That's true. Or it, it also might have been the comedian. The That's comedian, true. I think, was on the grassy knoll. And- or Magneto. <laughs> yeah, Magneto did help. That's where that magic bullet came from. It was just all being controlled by his powers. And let's not forget, in this episode, it has a connection to X-Files. Jerry Harden plays LBJ. He plays Deep Throat in yeah. the season of the X-Files. That's true. It was nice to see him. Yes, Jerry Harden is always a welcome character actor. He is a fantastic character actor. It would have been funny if it had been... Um, William Davis? William B. Davis? Uh-huh. <laughs> I think that would have been yeah. somehow even funnier casting. Should have been in there somewhere. Sure. Yeah, exactly. Just tie it all back. But I think we're all in agreement. This is a pretty, pretty good segment, yeah? Yeah. I mean, this segment lives and dies by its performances because there are the holes in the logic, but such damn good performances. Oh, yeah. Yeah, ultimately, I'm I'm in agreement. Like, I have uh, massive problems with the episode overall, but it's not like I felt like I was wasting my time by watching it because you're watching a bunch of really excellent actors uh, doing their thing, and the script does not disappoint when it comes to them. Speaking of the script disappointing, let's talk about the next segment, Button Button. So Button Button is the second segment of the 20th episode of the show, it, it, it aired uh, March 7th, the same date as the previous segment, obviously. It's directed by Twilight Zone 1985 journeyman Peter Medak. It's written by Logan can go Swanson, fuck himself. a.k.a. Richard Matheson, because Richard Matheson didn't like the ending of the uh, segment. I can't imagine why. It was just the ending. Oh, no. And it stars, why would he? Yeah, it stars Basil Hoffman, Brad Davis, and Mayor Winningham. And it is, if you have seen the film... The Box, which is based off of the short story of the same, uh, not same name, but same concept. Uh, The original short story's name is Button Button. The Box is the Cameron Diaz, James Marsden film from 2009, based off of the same premise. You've seen this episode, more or less. The ending, I think, of the movie is a little bit better than the episode's ending. But yeah, this segment is just, I'm shocked at how bad this is. I've never seen the box. How can they stretch this premise out to be an hour and a half? Well, you take the first 30 minutes to get to the point where the box shows up. <laughs> Film is uh, probably the about the first half uh, concerns the original story. And then uh, he has tacked on this idea that uh, the box itself and the sort of test are part of an alien conspiracy to take over Earth. So he, he 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 kind of robbed it of its uh, original supernatural 
bent and uh, posited towards a uh, a dying race that are looking to colonize Earth and using this box as a test whether or not we're worthy of uh, uh, colonization. Now, having said that, here's the deal. The original fucking story, I'm sure you guys have read it, it's about a couple who are just struggling and they're decent people and they're given this box and the possibility, in the original story, it was $50,000 because it was written in like 68 or so. Um, when we have this new script, which was, by the way, as you mentioned, Chris, written by Richard Matheson himself before he decided he was going to take his name off of it, they upgraded to $200,000. And the idea is if you, uh, you're given a box and if you push a button, someone randomly that you don't know is going to die. And really what it is, is a peer, uh, a character piece between a husband and wife where the wife and the husband have zero to do with one another as far as what their marriage is going through. And the wife ends up pushing the button. And then her hu- in the story, her husband dies. She gets the money. And she says to the, the, the guy who uh, gave them the box in the first place, I thought you told me it was going to be somebody I didn't know. And they said, well, you didn't really know your husband to begin with anyway, did you? And then they give her the money. And then they disappear. It is so... It is... It, you know, look, I'm a huge fan of Richard Matheson. Uh, I think he hit on a lot of genre tropes and twisted them into an interesting way. But this was his absolute masterpiece. And the fact that what they give us instead is this ending is fucking insane. I, 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 I'm not surprised he took his name off of the episode. Yes, because this episode is awful. It's really bad. Just as the last episode, how I said that it lives and dies by its performances, regardless of the story, the performances in this, oh my goodness. I mean, I like Mayor Winningham and Brad Davis, but Mayor Winningham just playing this venomous harpy the entire way, and him with with, with his stutter and all this, just <laughs> fuck off it is not good and it really just it, it, like i kept saying to myself what did they ever see in each other were they ever in love what's the problem here and it was just it, it was awful i couldn't stand them well hey at least Don't the episode's th- title isn't the title that they used when it was a um a radio play which was the chinaman button but they do go. They do mention Chinaman in the episode because Mayor Winningham's character, to further reinforce that she is a piece of garbage, says, "What if it's just some Chinaman?" That's Great. not the preferred nomenclature, dude. Yeah, not even close. Ooh, boy. There's and that's like one of the many plethora of problems with this episode. So. Don't you think, given what we're presented with, that the Mayor Winningham character being this sort of castrating harridan of a wife character which is not unusual in american fiction from the sort of mid 20th century when the the gentleman shows up and said and gives her the rules and gives her the key and says you just put this key in and you open the box and if you push this button someone is going to die that she would not have walked immediately across the room and slapped her hand on the button Three-second episode segment! 
if you push this button, someone is going to die, but you're going to get 200,000. Do I know the person? Uh, you don't. You sure? Because I don't even care if I do. Can you guarantee it's not someone I know? Well, no. I mean, it might be someone you know. Okay, slap. Give me my 200,000. Yeah. See, if I had been her husband, I would have just slapped it so that her ass would disappear. But, you know, that's going with that original ending, which they didn't really steer into. Right, I mean, which look, was I, more interesting in that he ends up dying, you know? Right. And oh, yeah. The punishment, like, the like punishment what, fits the crime. Whatever sort of dynamic we've set up between these two characters, it ends up being her husband who dies. And we, as you mentioned, Mike, we don't get any sense that these two people love each other at all. We have no. two people who are at, at odds, stuck together, who are could not be more diametrically opposed, and now we're supposed to appreciate their inability to process the possibility of pushing a button to kill somebody else? Get the fuck out of here. I mean, look, I wasn't a huge fan of the movie. I like Richard Kelly. I know that that's probably an unpopular opinion or... A- an advisable opinion, depending on how, depending on how much you like Southland Southland Tales, I guess. See, he's done some interesting things. Yeah, the success of those things will vary depending on the person. But I like his script for Domino. Never seen it, but I have seen Donnie Darko. Uh, okay. <laughs> what is what? Am I, what? No, no, no to Donnie Darko. No, I, I like Donnie Darko, but that's like that's it. You know what I mean? Like if you're gonna Well Richard, point to Richard Kelly, Kelly hasn't done much. Yeah, which is why I'm saying you should probably check out Domino, because I thought his script was interesting. Is that the it was that a Tony Scott? Yeah. Oh, yep. I didn't realize he wrote that. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. It felt more like a hey, you know, Abrams I, with the way that you jumped around in time. <laughs> uh, it it did, but I think uh, he 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 layered in some sort of interesting um, moments uh, like throughout that entire script where uh, I think if you had written that sort of straight ahead and not pick somebody who could at least step back and point and uh, point it in a different direction, uh, that movie would have been a 100% failure. I'm not saying that movie is uh, winning in any way. I'm just saying... It works because Richard Kelly actually considered the subject matter and uh, gave us something interesting. And for the record, Richard Kelly has three films. Donnie Darko, Southland Tales, and The Box. However, supposedly, tying back to The Twilight Zone, he is directing and writing the untitled Rod Serling biopic. Oh, well. So, So there you go. I'm down. But thank I hope God he makes he's not it great. directing. Thank God he did not direct this because, like you said, Father Malone, Peter Medak has been stinking up the Twilight Zone. Peter Medak, Peter Medak is fucking garbage. Uh, I, 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 you know, I don't feel, I don't feel in any way qualified in saying that. I just think like he's one of these guys that uh, you used to hear his name every once in a while in the late 80s and early 90s as sort of a serious filmmaker who is dabbling in genres that ordinarily a serious filmmaker shouldn't and when I look at his work on the on the Twilight Zone specifically I just think you have no fucking basis being anywhere near any genre you fucking hack that's I mean every single episode. Is the changeling the exception that proves the rule? 
No, the changeling is, uh, yeah, yeah, maybe, in that he got lucky because he had some performances and moments that were given to him because Peter Medak is a fucking terrible filmmaker, man. Oh, I like him. I like figures in the landscape. I know he didn't direct that, but he almost did. <laughs> you know, uh, Zorro the oh, Gate. That, that's fun. cool. You know what? I, 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 I love Fight Club, which somebody else almost made. <laughs> <laughs> well, regardless of, regardless of Peter Medak, this segment, the direction is not why it's bad. The script is terrible. The performances are ridiculous to so just obnoxiously grating that you just hope that someone would take Mayor Winningham's character out back and push her in front of a train. Because it's just not, you don't want to be around this character the entire episode. It's just you just you just don't want to be around these kinds of characters. There's nothing. No, to you know what? Like I read a, a sort of interview with Alan Brennard, and he mentioned this episode in particular, where he was saying, um, "Yeah, you know, there are certain episodes where the uh, story, as far as what it was filmed, got away from us from the uh, the directors and the production design and uh, where it was going." And this was definitely one of them. And all I can think is, this series, uh, more than any other series I think I've ever seen, is the writer's medium. Where the writers themselves were given over to producing the episode, meaning they were watching it from beginning to end. Now, Richard Matheson had no need, after writing the script, to come there and oversee what was happening. But... When you have something as powerful as a comment on people's marriages where one does not understand the other, and that is effectively the point of the entire fucking episode, and then you skip over that and then throw in this moment where, at the end, it's it's basically implied that she's the one who pushed the button, and now she's next. Like, th- that is the twist we're given. I'm just like, oh, my God, that has nothing to do with anything. Like, even if I had not read the original story, even if I had no concept of what it's like to be in a marriage with somebody else, like, it just feels cheap, ultimately. Yeah. Yeah, it's very, very heavy-handed when he's just like, and you will – and I will find – someone who you don't know. I'm like, oh. (laughs) So basically her husband will inherit the uh, money and that's it. And he can spend the rest of his life stuttering over how much money he has. (laughs) And you know what? Like, I like, I like, do you like Brad Davis? I like Brad Davis, Mike. I mean, I mean, you know, fucking Midnight Run. He's uh, not Midnight Run, Midnight Express. Uh, He's so... He's so good in that. Oh, or uh, did you ever see uh, a small circle of friends? It's a call. It's a college movie set. You know, I, I don't know. It was filmed in the mid seventies, but set during the sort of weatherman period of the early nineteen sixties. Brad Davis is sort of the sensitive guy who uh, is gets gets wrapped up into it. Brad Davis always impressed me as somebody who uh, always, I don't know, just just delivered as a human being and here he's just willing to sort of fall back on all these sort of tropes and let his character be the character that was written so i can't even defend brad davis here unfortunately this this is just this might be one of the worst segments i've seen 
just because of Mayor Winningham's character. My, inab- my inability to enjoy this episode stems directly from her character's just increasingly obnoxious and unrealistically castrating demeanor. I mean, goddammit, they have her bring the fucking shopping cart into her goddamn kitchen. And I mean, okay. Hey, Once man. you see that, you, you know who you're dealing with, right? Oh, yeah. The, the person who's just like, oh, you got a box in the mail? Does it say anything? Does it say by any chance that I'm going to kill somebody if I push the button? Because I'll push that fucking button. But it'll kill you next. Bum, bum, bum. Who cares? Who cares? Whatever. I don't care. I'm pushing the button. Yeah, exactly. Give give me my 200K. So putting button, button in the rearview mirror on the next episode of Dreams for Sale, we'll be taking a look at the 21st episode of Twilight Zone 1985. We are three episodes shy of the end at this point with episode 21. Episode 21 is broken into two parts, Need to Know and Red Snow. Until then, where can people find you, Father Malone? Uh, check me out over on my YouTube channel, Ot5 Films, O-U-G-H-G-F-I-V-E-F-I-L-M-S. I have quite a few review shows and a bit of other insanity based on our recent quarantine that I'd like you to check out. You can also hear me over on Chronicles from the Crypt, the Twilight Zone. No, 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 no we're talking about the Twilight Zone. Uh, the Chronicles from the Crypt, the Tales from the Crypt podcast, which we are now into season six and rounding the bend on that particular one. And uh, about once a month or so, you can also hear me over on the Culture Cast talking movies. What about you, Mike White? Well, you can hear me over at the Projection Booth Podcast, which is available, oddly enough, at projectionboothpodcast.com. As for myself, you can find me on the Scary Stories We Tell podcast once a week talking true crime, horror, and paranormal slash unexplained. And uh, as Hey, I'm on that. What? (laughs) Hey, I'm on that. That's true. And soon to be Mike as well. Um... That's right. Uh, I forgot about that. Man, it's fucking two months ago now. Jesus Christ. Well, it's because you're, you're one of the interviewees who hasn't possibly sexually assaulted women. So, you know, there's that. It's kind of hard to remember all the good ones when all the bad ones keep canceling. Um, as you for should my, remember as, the bad ones. Yeah. As for this podcast, you can check us out at twilightzone85.com. Big thanks, as always, to Roxy Drive and Neutron Dreams for the music for the podcast. And we'll catch you on the next episode. Dreams for sale.